Well, as Andrew said, my name is Brent Complin, and uh, I've been on staff or doing church planting here th- through Solano as a daughter ministry for almost four years. It just hit me a second ago. Um, it's been a little while, but uh, we are doing a ministry in San Francisco called SF Mission, and it's a church planting ministry. The goal is to try and introduce people to Jesus around the dinner table. And what we're looking at is how do we try and uh, introduce Jesus to people who maybe wouldn't go to a church or are unchurched or whatever it is. We're like experimenting with living missionally in San Francisco and planting a church. So there's plenty of challenges we're facing. I, I could tell so much more, and maybe you could come you know, ask me about it afterwards if you want, but you can pray for us about that. Um, it's, a, it's a big challenge, but God's working in a lot of ways, and I see him tilling the soil for something, and we're trying to kind of listen and, and hear what God's doing. So that's a little bit about me, but let's get to our, our text for today. So grab your Bible and open up to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because we'll hand one out to you and and you can flip to it in that Bible. You can also keep this Bible um, that we'd hand out to you if you don't have one. So Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12 is where we're going to read. So what we're going to do today is we've been going through a series in Ephesians and what we're going to do is take sort of a a little bit of a sidetrack or a little bit of a break um, in our series in Ephesians to talk about Paul's experiences in prison. So what I want to do is, uh, well, we know that Paul wrote his letter to the church in Ephesus from prison, and I believe that this actually informed his thinking and his writing or or, or his theology of what he said. So what we're going to do is sort of have a goal of of pausing for a moment in the midst of our our series through Ephesians, diving deeper into looking at the impact that Paul's time in prison made on his life. So we're going to kind of do this little detour through Philippians. So Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12, let's read the text Together, What we're going to see as we read this is that God works to advance the gospel through limitations, not in spite of them, okay? Through limitations, not in spite of them. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. This is the word of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in that every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So what we're going to do as we tackle this passage this morning is sort of look at it in two parts. Uh, The first part tells us about Paul's circumstances in prison, and then the second gives us sort of a detailed illustration of how he views those circumstances, what he thinks about it, right, his perspective. So before we dive in, though, to, to kind of looking at it in detail, let me tell you a little bit about the book of Philippians. Now, this letter is a letter written from Paul to a church in a place called Philippi, and this church is a church that Paul helped start, okay? And then he left, and as they started the church, he experienced quite a bit of persecution. They experienced being ostracized socially. They experienced physical abuse. They were constantly being persecuted. So Paul leaves to go to another city to help start another church, and it's been maybe months, possibly years, since they've heard from Paul or seen him. So this church is a little bit worried because they heard that he'd been arrested, all right? So imagine this. They waited 
as long as four years to hear if Paul was okay after he'd been arrested. Okay, imagine that. They wondered where he was, if he'd gone to trial yet, if he was going to be executed. And, and as they're waiting, this letter comes. This letter from the hand of Paul. And this is where we pick up our passage. So the, kind of the first idea that we're going to look at as we look at verses 12 to 14 is, is that Paul's not concerned about himself, but he recognizes that God's working through his imprisonment. So look at, look at how he starts talking about his circumstances in verse 12. Look back at that with me. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So first thing we have to see is that Paul's not focused on the state of his own health. He's not focused on whether he's had a fair trial. He's not telling them about his plans to you know, be released or to be executed or whatever it is. He instead deflects and turns his attention to the state of the message of Christ. So imagine when this church receives this letter. Okay, kind of put yourself in their shoes for a moment. They've been waiting months, possibly years, right, to hear what had happened to their beloved friend and pastor. And then as they get this letter, maybe they gather together in an emergency meeting and they all get into somebody's living room and, and a leader stands up and he reads through and they sort of furiously work through the introduction and all of the different things they says at the beginning. They're looking, what's Paul going to say about how he is? We want to know what's happening. And they get to the moment in the letter where he's supposed to talk about how he's doing and he says... What's happening to me is advancing the message of Christ. See, you have to understand a little of the, the, how a letter in the first century was written. It's, it's sort of a, they have, they have regular patterns, sort of like we write emails or thank you notes. You kind of know how it's going to go. In, in, in a letter in the first century, there'd be a, an introduction, and then there'd be sort of some statements about the recipients. It's kind of like verses 1 to 11 in Philippians. And then you get to verse 12. This is, the, this is the area of the letter where normally somebody would go in at length about their own circumstances and what's happening. So imagine you write home to your parents and you'd say, hey, you know, I hope you guys are doing really well. Now let me tell you about all the different things I'm experiencing in the trials and circumstances I'm going through in my classes at college or whatever, right? Instead of doing that, Paul glosses over everything he's experienced over possibly these four years in one statement, in five words. What has happened to me, dot, dot, dot. He's alluding to years of challenges and trials, okay? If you trace out the events of Paul's life in the book of Acts from chapters 21 to 28, sort of the end of the book of Acts, you're going to see this whole series of events. He, he was warned by the Holy Spirit that bonds and imprisonment awaited him. He dealt with false accusations from his own people. He was nearly lynched by a religious mob before narrowly escaping a flogging by the Romans because he pled his citizenship. He was not secure. He, couldn't able, he wasn't able to secure a hearing before the governor, and he was subject to ridicule and shame. There were deadly plots against him. He was kept imprisoned under false pretenses. Then as he was transferred to Rome, he gets in a shipwreck on the way and almost dies. And when he finally gets there, it took two years for him to figure out whether he was going to live or die. And he glosses over that entire history of his life and his circumstances, and never sought the pity or desire to dwell on those things. He starts the section of the letter specifically reserved for personal updates with a report on the state of the gospel. Whoa. He says that all of his sufferings, his near-death experiences, his times in prison has really served to advance the gospel. Now, this term advance... In the reading I was doing about it, many people think it's like a military term. It's like an army advances over mountains and through forests. 
through all of the, the, the blockages and the things in between where it needs to go. So imagine Paul's using this word to say that the gospel is going through incredible adversity here and the terrible circumstances he's experiencing actually serve to push it ahead. He sort of gives us a, the immediate results of this. Look at, so we looked at verse 12. Look at verses 13 and 14. He's kind of showing us how they, his circumstances advance the gospel. He's saying that his imprisonment has caused the gospel to advance through the ears of the guards and other onlookers and also through the mouths of the other believers. So, listen, Paul was probably literally chained to a Roman soldier. Okay, Shackles on Paul's wrists and a chain and shackle on a big, burly, nasty Roman soldier for months, possibly years. Okay, imagine no privacy, no alone time, okay, no ability to go to the bathroom by yourself. It's literally chained to a Roman soldier for this time. So as this soldier and then the others in the prison complex, the other guards and prisoners or whoever, listened and watched Paul, he's living with his heart for the gospel on his sleeve. He, he, he's, he's going through life in this experience, praying and listening to God, and, and to hear him talking about Jesus on a daily basis, he starts to gain a reputation that his imprisonment is for the sake of Christ. Now, verse 14 talks about the other believers, and this really drives an important point home. It says these other believers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, Paul says, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Now, there's an important distinction here. These believers were not bold to speak of Jesus in spite of Paul's imprisonment. They were emboldened because of his imprisonment. So how could they find a greater confidence in the gospel because of Paul's time in jail? I think we need to draw this out for a minute. Um, As I've been reflecting on it, I think there's sort of a personal and and a practical aspect to this. So personally, I think that other believers may maybe gain confidence from, from modeling or seeing Paul model how you could live through such circumstances in a godly way. So they see that he's modeling the right kind of perspective and attitude that a Christian should have in the face of danger, right? But practically speaking, they start to see that Paul's imprisonment does not stop the spread of the gospel. See, the message of Jesus can't be chained up. It can't be stopped. So Paul may physically be in chains, but the work and the message of Christ is free. So look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's going to be on the screen. It says this, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. You see, Paul shows us that the gospel is still marching ahead because the guards are hearing the good news and other believers are more bold because of his chains. This is really the the case in the larger scope of Christian history, right? For 2,000 years, no matter how hard people or governments try to chain up the gospel, it continues to spread in advance, right? Now, sort of the second kind of part of our passage that I want to look at and dwell on for a moment is 
is verses 15 to 18. And this gives us, uh, as I said a moment ago, a, a detailed illustration of Paul's perspective on his limitations. So how does he view what's happening? And, and, and this is illustrating an actual event that's occurring at, at the time. So Paul gives this very immediate and real illustration, right? He talks about two different types of people. And what I'm going to do is instead of reading those, I'm actually going to list them out here on the screen. You'll see the parallels, okay? So w- check this out. He talks about there's people who preach Christ out of goodwill, in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel in truth. There's one set of people, right? Now, there's another group. They say they preach Christ out of envy and rivalry for selfishness, supposing that they can afflict me in my imprisonment in pretense. Do you see the parallels here? Do you see the differences? You see in love, selfishness. You see that the, maybe some are, they know that, God, that Paul is in prison because of the gospel and others suppose that they could kick Paul while he's down. Do you see how he's comparing the two? It's fascinating. You see the clear parallels between these two different types of people. These envious and selfish preachers might have been ashamed by Paul, right? They live in an honor-based society, okay? And, and being thrown in prison may have been viewed as sort of scandalously dragging the name of Christ through the mud. These rival leaders might have sought to take advantage of Paul's situation of weakness to advantage themselves in the church, right? So here's the difference, or here's the key. There's a stark difference between Paul and these other people, these other rival preachers. Paul, again, you see this, is solely concerned with the advancement of the gospel, while these rival preachers are concerned with the advancement of themselves, right? You sort of have to ultimately ask yourself, this is where it kind of gets into our world, who or what are you fighting for, or who or what are you living or dying for, Jesus or yourself? Well, if we look at the evidence from Paul's life, he doesn't worry the Philippians with any details about himself. He jumps straight in his letter to the state of the gospel. He's willing and ready to serve Christ even to the point of imprisonment and death and he concedes he's in a position of weakness. He knows it. And he relinquishes control to God. Now I love how he ends this little passage here in verse 18 where he he talks about this comparison. He says in verse 18, check it out. He says, what then? Only in that every way Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's, again, only concerned with whether the gospel's advancing. He finds joy in knowing that God uses both the evil and the good to move the gospel ahead. I think we have to stop and kind of draw out some of the things we can learn from Paul's limitations, sort of his perspective and the illustration he's using of these rival preachers, right? So I've been reflecting on this, and I think there's a few thoughts I wanted to share. So we're talking about limitations, right? I think maybe, maybe today, maybe this afternoon, we'll see if Peyton Manning can overcome his physical limitations to win a Super Bowl. Okay, it wasn't that funny. It wasn't funny first time either. Um, some of you are like, who's Peyton Manning? Um, it's okay. So uh, that was a Super Bowl joke. That was the second one. Okay, that's it. We're going to be done for the day with Super Bowl jokes. Okay, but more seriously, what we're going to do is I want, I want us to think more deeply about Paul's limitations. So what we need to do is reflect and think about the limitations Paul experienced. He was physically chained up. So, but why would the Romans put him in prison? Think about this for a moment. 
We could probably list a few reasons. Here's just a few examples maybe that I thought of. Maybe, maybe he was chained up to stop the spread of the gospel, maybe to, to remove Paul physically from starting new churches. Maybe it was a political move to appease the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Maybe the Romans wanted to discourage Paul's followers or silence them. Maybe it's some kind of social control to get the crowds in Jerusalem to calm down. The point is that many people wanted to limit Paul's influence and his ability to preach the gospel. This makes me think of Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from Birmingham jail. In August 1963, Dr. King was arrested and he was held in jail for nonviolent protests in Birmingham. And he wrote a letter in response to critical comments made by eight white religious leaders who said that his actions and his followers were unwise and untimely. Now, I imagine that the Birmingham police had a very similar rationale for jailing Dr. King as the Romans did for Paul, right? But as we saw with Dr. King's imprisonment and the letter he wrote, they actually served to embolden those fighting against the injustices of segregation. So Dr. King's circumstances only served, listen, to clarify his priorities and the cause he was fighting for. So instead of fear, silence, and confusion, those fighting for civil rights were more confident, loud, and clear on their convictions. And, in fact, in this letter from Birmingham Jail, their application of the gospel to this situation. Can you see how the the goals of imprisonment are turned upside down? Can you see how an attempt to hold down the advance of the gospel actually serves to push it forward with more speed and effectiveness than ever before? I like to think of some examples from across Scripture of people who had limitations on their lives or circumstances. Look at this list. I think of Abraham and Sarah who were promised to be parents of a global family of God and Sarah couldn't get pregnant to start the first generation. I think of the poor speaking ability of Moses as God asked him to lead God's people out of Egypt. I think of Samson, blind and without strength. Or Gideon in his tiny army. Or, or maybe the boy David who had no military training but faces Goliath with a sling and a rock. Or maybe the prophet Jeremiah who's thrown into a cistern. Or think of Jesus, a carpenter from Podunk, Nazareth, who gathers together a ragtag bunch of tax collectors and fishermen and ends up strung up and nailed to a cross naked and exposed, dying the death of a cursed criminal. How our perspective on limitations should change. So sort of the second thing I want to ponder this morning is that question, how can my perspective change concerning limitations? I think we we struggle to look at limitations, trials, and sufferings with the right lens. I've been thinking about this. I think I'm realizing we live in this age of self-discovery and self-actualization. A, a, a time that we've come to believe that we're, there's sort of like a self-definition deep down inside of us that we need to discover, embrace, and sort of assert it over everyone else's opinion of us. Right? So one of the prevailing narratives of our culture is that any limitation on who I am really deep down is automatically bad, automatically evil, including any outside authority or some magic book that tells me what to do. I 
I think an expression of this is maybe to seek to break free from limitations at all costs at all times. Uh, Sort of an absolute freedom or absence of suffering is some kind of an ideal. Now, it's definitely good, hear me, it is definitely good for us to fight for less suffering and to seek justice at all times. But we need to reflect on, on sort of the condition of our heart in the midst of these things, right? And actually, I would argue, sort of as a little aside, I would argue that as a creature, if we believe that we're created by God as a creature, that you might actually be created to thrive in limitations. You're not designed to be completely free, right, of limitations, right? Just think of eating and sleeping for one example, practically speaking. Now, let me get back to this condition of the heart. I think that there's something about our our heart's attitude kind of in this moment in time that we need to discover or talk about. I, I think maybe there's two issues at play here when we talk about the heart. The first is that we might get a sense of despair or anger or fear. I think it's a fact of life that we'll experience limitations and injustices and trials and sufferings, right? As much as we can and should fight against these things, they're a reality in our world. They're a reality in our everyday life. So if you approach life with a mindset that any limitations on who you are or on your self-actualization is bad or evil, you're going to be constantly frustrated, trying to rid your life of those things. So in a way, and this is sort of the second part of this issue for me with the heart, is I think we have to, we sort of react by asserting control over those limitations or circumstances, or at least we try. This really is rooted in anxiety. I like to, I like to define anxiety like this. It's the distress we feel when our desire to be in control is met with the realization that we aren't in control. That's anxiety. So there's two options when you face anxiety. One is to grip tighter on controlling your circumstances and trying to change them, and the other is letting go and trusting God. So when Paul was faced with this decision, he gets a different perspective, and this really gets at the main point. his his, His perspective on limitations and suffering changed when he chose to trust God with what was going on. So here's the key point. I think this is the point throughout our whole passage this morning. God doesn't work in spite of your limitations. He works through them. So listen carefully. This is utterly consistent with the gospel. We believe in a gospel of grace, a a message that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. So if we believe in our utter inability to save ourselves and and that we must throw ourselves at the foot of the cross and give up our very lives to follow Jesus, only then can we understand and embrace limitations in a completely different way. So listen, the very fact that you are limited and inadequate to be a herald of the gospel is the entire point. Because of a gospel of grace dependent solely on the work of Christ on your behalf, you can see your limitations, trials, and sufferings with a different perspective. Now, let me drill down to a, sort of a more personal level here. I think kind of the third thought for this morning is, is to consider what kind of limitations you have. I want you to think about this for a moment. In what ways is God using your limitations or times of suffering to advance the gospel? There's a lot of ways we can feel imprisoned. You might be sitting here this morning feeling trapped by job loss or you maybe lost your house or something like that. Maybe, maybe you carry 
with you the scars and pain of a broken family, an abusive parent or unloving siblings? Maybe you're shackled by addiction or alcohol or drugs. Maybe you've suffered rejection from friends or jobs or schools or housing. Or maybe you feel trapped and helpless because of infertility. Maybe you're a single and you feel destined to be alone forever. Or maybe you feel constantly strapped by financial problems and crippling debt. Maybe you have kids and you feel like my whole life is dictated by my kids' schedule. Or or maybe you're trapped by your own sense of inadequacy or self-worth. All of these things can feel like a prison cell. Now, as much as we believe in redemption and that God can actually dramatically change your circumstances and heal you, we also know, and don't miss this, that God is most concerned with forming a deep Christ-like character in you. The most Christ-like character seeking to follow the ultimate suffering servant, which is Christ, is usually formed through the challenges and sufferings that we experience. So consider your limitations. Consider the trials you're facing. You can actually ask God how he's working to bring the gospel to bear through those things, not in spite of them. The fourth thing I want to think about this morning is just to pause for a minute and emphasize that the limitations or things you struggle with are real. The suffering you experience is real. I don't want to make light of them. I grieve with you because of those things. Your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room grieve with you because of those things. And we recognize that some of us who may be sitting here today are reaching our wit's end. Some of us are despairing. Some of us have given up hope. I can't help but think of, in Les Mis, of Jean Valjean grabbing the wounded Marius and tossing him on his shoulder and dragging him literally through a sewer to safety and to deliver him to the hands and arms of his beloved. And how, as the church, we get to take a brother and sister in Christ who is wounded and hurting and suffering, pick them up, toss them on our shoulder, walk with them through the crap that they're experiencing, and lay them down at the foot of the cross to be healed in the arms of their beloved Savior. This is what it means to be the church. The fifth thing I want us to think about is, in light of that, to remember that God is in control. Human circumstances lie in God's hands. You have to know that he uses them to advance the gospel. God doesn't waste opportunities. He doesn't waste resources, okay? He's in the business of redeeming lost and broken and sinful things. And he can use even the craziest or challenging of limitations to advance his gospel. So, listen to this. Maybe maybe your story of trusting God to provide after you were laid off from your job, can encourage someone who's looking for work. Maybe your struggle with infertility and resting with, wrestling with God about the desires of your heart can help an unbeliever see what surrender to God looks like in the face of despair. Maybe the church as the family of God can show those who come from broken families what real fatherhood, motherhood, and brotherly and sisterly love look like. Maybe your financial struggles can can be a witness to the sufficiency of God when material resources had been your idol. God is at work in your limitations and circumstances, sometimes long before you know it or realize it. 
Let me give you an illustration of that. I, I've been really powerfully struck by God's sovereignty over the last couple weeks because uh, in November, my family moved into Bernal Heights, different neighborhood in San Francisco than we'd been living before. Um, and we've been there for two and a half years, and we've just kind of now moved out of my wife's boss's house. My wife's a chef, and we've been living with her boss for a couple years, and it's been awesome. But now we're living in our own house. And the neighborhood we moved into, um, we'd been looking at places across the city for months, and we'd been rejected over and over and over again. And uh, we had sort of the last shot before my daughter was born, and we said, well, this is the last one we're going to apply for, and then we're going to have to wait until after we get settled in with a new baby. We got it. Okay? in a place in a neighborhood we never thought we could at a price we never thought was possible. God provided a miracle. Okay? Now, what happened is a few weeks ago, I met a guy at a pastor's sort of Christian networking breakfast thing, and uh, we exchanged numbers. I found out he and his wife had been living and doing some missional church planting and business in Bernal Heights, my neighborhood, for like 15 years. So we exchanged numbers. We got together for dessert. They came over to my house and walk in the front door, and the first thing they do is they look at me and they say, you're not going to believe this, but right next door, like your next door neighbor, is a, a guy who's an atheist, and his wife is a pastor's kid who's walked away from God. We've been friends with them and been trying to witness Christ to them for 12 years, and you moved in next door. They said, we have been in this neighborhood for 15 years, and we have hundreds of friends that live literally around you. Two houses down from us, their kids go to soccer together, okay? They're carpooling next to my house all the time, right? What I've realized as I'm having that conversation with them is that God's been preparing for 15 years for us to live in that house. That he's been going ahead of us. And, and this family, they, this couple, they looked at me and they said, we feel like God's been using us to till the soil of this neighborhood for 15 years and we've been praying for a harvest, but it hasn't come and maybe you're a part of that. Fifteen years ago, I was in eighth grade. Okay, so God knew and was in control so much so that he was preparing for us to live in that house 15 years ago. Wow. Don't forget that God is in control. The last thing I want to ponder with you for a moment is is, is to remember that Paul, we see Paul living with joy. Remember how our passage ends. It's in verse 18. He says, it says that Paul rejoices because Christ is preached. Christ is proclaimed, and so he, 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 gets, he gets some joy in that in the midst of being in prison chained to this Roman guard. So here's the lesson. Our joy should be connected to the advancement of the gospel and how God's bringing to bear the message of Christ in our life and putting it on display to the world. So, we get, to, we get to find joy in a deeper reflection on how God's using our limitations and circumstances and struggles to form us into the image of Christ. We shouldn't be dependent on pleasant circumstances, right? And instead, we get a deeper sense of joy to know that when we're facing terrible things personally, that God is using them to form us to have Christ-like character. That he's using them to put the gospel on display to the world. So, Solano, rejoice in the fact that God counts you worthy of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Find peace and joy in the fact that God is in control of your life, that he's redeeming your limitations for his glory, that he's putting on display his glorious grace through your life, 
not in spite of your limitations and sufferings. You might feel chained, but remember what Paul says. God's word is not chained. Wow. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we recognize that maybe even in this moment, there's some in this room who feel like they are stuck in a prison cell. They feel like the struggles or trials or limitations or things that, that have been placed in their life are out of their control and have limited their abilities. But God, you are so clearly working through our limitations and sufferings and struggles because of a gospel of grace. Because we get to come to you empty-handed with nothing to bring to save ourselves and fling ourselves at the foot of the cross and cry, God, save me. Put on display the truth of the gospel through us, not in spite of us. Use every bit of who we are in your sovereign control. Nothing is outside of your redemption. Nothing is outside of your sovereignty and your ability to proclaim Christ through us. We love you, God. We lay our lives down. We trust you. In Jesus' name.